you have your Bibles, would you open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7? We're actually be working through verses 1 through 14. And this is a, a key passage for us uh, today because this is really where Ecclesiastes is going to take a shift. And Solomon, uh, which we, as we've been studying, if you're new uh, today, let me give you a little background. Ecclesiastes is this book uh, which we believe is written by Solomon, who was the wisest man of all time. And he went on this quest with all of the power and wealth and that he had to search all of life and to try to find meaning. Where is true life found? Where is the best life? And so he pursued uh, power to the nth degree of ruling and, and building his wealth and his fame. And then he pursued pleasure, relationships, uh, intellect, all these things. And he comes to the conclusion at the end is that everything that he pursued after, all of it turned out to be meaningless. It was all, what? Vanity, right? Striving after the wind. And so now he comes to this place in chapter 7 where it's going to turn. And he's, he's come to the conclusion. He's come to his conclusion after searching all of these different avenues and paths and all those things that really life is meaningless, right? It's all vanity. But what he comes to the conclusion is there is a better way to live and there is a wise way of living. And so that's what he's going to instruct us in the rest of Ecclesiastes. What is this better way of living? What is the best life that you can have uh, living in this? Where we're going to conclude is, is a place that is going to point us straight to the gospel, which, which I'm really excited about. His conclusion in chapter 7, let me just give you where we're going to end up, is that this world is broken and it's upside down. It doesn't make any sense. It's upside down. And so the only way to navigate this life is through upside down wisdom, counterintuitive wisdom, upside down wisdom. That's where we keep coming back to. And uh, to, to kind of illustrate, he's kind of going to be navigating us of how do you walk through life when in the brokenness and in the disappointments. That's kind of one of the places he's going to be walking with us. And he's navigating us through uh, this life of how do you do that. One illustration of that is, is to, to think back of our old school maps, okay? How many of you uh, grew up or used uh, these old paper maps to get across country when you went on trips, okay? Have you ever done that? Okay, now if you're under 20 years old, have you ever used a paper map in your car to find where you're going to go? Anyone? You have, sir, young sir. How, why did you use a paper map? I am so curious. My phone was dead. Exactly, right? Like I've literally been downtown Nashville and my, my phone doesn't get reception for some odd reason. I'm like, I'm lost. I mean, I might as well just be homeless wandering the streets now. I don't know how to get back. I don't know which way is north. Just call an Uber, whatever, you know, like that, that's going to give me a... We are so dependent on our phones. And so uh, this week I was actually like looking for a way to illustrate this point. And I, was, I was out in, in Franklin looking for a map, an actual physical map. And everyone's like, yeah, we don't have those anymore. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't have those anymore? I, if you're like me, in, I, I grew up and uh, uh, we did a lot of family trips out west and all those things and went to like 46 states when I was growing up. And we had this big conversion van and we had this huge basket of AAA maps that, we, you know, from one state to another, you know, that you'd pull out. And I remember trying, the, what was the worst part about using a paper map? When you're done with it. Yes, exactly right. And, and so they'd be like mangled and, you know, never, never put back together. But there's one place you can still go in Nashville and you have to rely on a paper map. Let me pull it up. It is the Nashville Zoo. Okay? 
And so uh, Luke is our kind of our map navigator at the Nashville Zoo. And so he kind of leads everyone, uh, you know, through, takes great pride in knowing where, where to go, where to turn, all that kind of stuff. And he pulls out his big paper map. And the, the tricky part, though, is when you get all the way to the north end of the zoo, trying to go back and navigate your way down, like right becomes left, left becomes right. So what do you do? Well, there's a trick to this. You do what? You flip the map upside down, and then now you navigate that way going back south. And so that's what Solomon is essentially going to do for us today. He's going to say, okay, here's where you normally would head in life. But actually, the way to navigate life is to do something counterintuitive. It's flipping our maps upside down. It's using upside down wisdom is actually how you navigate. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up this uh, chapter 7. Verses 1 through 6 is where we're going to spend a little bit of our time, and then we're going to kind of move pretty quick at the back end. But the first six verses have one thing in common. They all seem to defy common sense. Where we typically would go, Solomon actually suggests doing the opposite. So let me give you some examples. Reputation is more valuable than wealth. The day you die is better than the day you're born. Welcome to church this morning. Um, You're better off at a funeral than a party. Sorrow is better than laughter, or rebuke is better than a song. What are all of these things of what Solomon is doing? He is, he's saying where you normally would go, what do you actually need to do? You need to flip your map upside down, and you need to do opposite of what you normally would do. Upside down wisdom, navigating an upside down world. So let's start in verse 1, and we'll take each, each verse on, on there themselves. Verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, the na- a name in Hebrew, like when you had a name, it went everything. It meant your character. It meant your reputation. It was essentially your, your essence of who you were as a person. So he's saying that has more wealth than, than comfort or luxury or material things that make up the good life. The reason why we chose to walk through Ecclesiastes as a book is because we live in Williamson County. And we believe that Williamson County represents the pursuit of the good life, of the parks and the good schools and everything that this world has to offer. So Solomon is saying, actually, character is actually what we should be pursuing more than what we would label the good life. It has more value. Now, in the world, the world doesn't operate this way. What has more value than character? Well, the world would tell us that uh, our identity, our value, our worth are in three essential categories of lies around our identity. Our, the lies that the, the world would tell us would be, you are what you do, you are what you have, you are what others say about you, or how you look. I mean, those are three kind of categories of how the world would say you need to judge your value and worth in this world. And Solomon is flipping that up and upside down and saying, no, it is actually your character, your essence as a person that actually you should be pursuing more development than those things. The back half of that verse, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. How does this make any sense? Better here doesn't mean more enjoyable. He's not saying this is better in the sense that it's more enjoyable or it's easier. What he's saying here is really ironic wisdom, but it's true. Life is better lived with the end in mind. That's what he's saying. Life is better lived with wiser to consider the end 
in mind. Now think about this with, with parenting. Parenting, you're, it's wiser to consider that one day your kids will leave your house and that they, you need to be putting things in their suitcase, right, in order to make sure that they have what it takes to live life on their own, that their character is developed. So you're parenting with the end in mind. Now when is it best to save for retirement? At age 60 or age 25, knowing that you're going to retire one day, you do what? You start saving with the end in mind. That's kind of what he's saying. He's living life with the end in mind. Psalm 90 uh, verse 12 says, teach us to number our ways that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So what he's saying here gets a little bit more clear in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Now this is upside down. Which would you rather? If I just threw this out here, hey, you can come to a party with me, or you can come join me at a funeral. Pretty obvious choice. Thanks, Samson. I mean, uh, Samson, Solomon. I know you're, a, you know, you're a super wise guy, but like, funeral isn't the isn't the place we're going to choose, right? But why is he recommending that you, it's not to avoid funerals and only go to feasting? It's because that same thing that when we go to a funeral, what are we doing? We're anticipating that one day we too will what have a funeral. We too will die. Uh, this, this message, when I was preparing for this this morning, I went in, into Williamson uh, Memorial, and I just went over there, and in the stillness and quiet, it's just me and the tombstones. I was just like, this is sobering to prepare a message in that way, of that all of us are going to have this fate. No one is going to escape this. And, and Solomon is saying, instead of trying to to avoid that reality is actually to live in light of it is actually where true wisdom is found. Now, when Solomon talks about the heart, he's going to bring this up in verse 3, verse 4, and verse 7. It's the Hebrew word lab, which means the inner person. So in Hebrew, there wasn't just one word. When we talk about heart, we kind of mean something different. When they talk about it, they, they kind of interchange heart with mind or thoughts or desires or even the emotional life. It's the inner life of a person. Essentially, the entirety of that person is the heart. So when he's playing this out, we'll see this um, play, come to play that the whole person is um, encapsulated in this word heart. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, is sad, a heart may be happy. Now the idea with this, again, is not happy in the, in the sense of how we tend to think of it, but heart in the sense of when it's put right, when it's in right order, then a face is a sad heart may be put right. This is saying um, facing your existence rather than trying to walk through life um, putting on a face or ignoring the heart existence. So instead of trying to wear a mask, he's saying don't just fake, uh, fake through life with a smile on your face. It's actually good and proper for you to walk through and be honest with the hardness of life. That's what, that's what he's saying. It's actually um, when people try to avoid woundedness, like their, their wounds that they have that they picked up relationally or in this life, wounds of others or mistakes that they've made, no one heals from a wound by ignoring it. Like no one has walked through this life and said, you know, I ignored it so long that now it's just, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt anymore or it doesn't have its effects. That's never what Solomon is saying is actually addressing it is what ends up happening. Um, verse four, 
The mind here is the same use, uh, word used for heart. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of the fools is in the house of pleasure. So reflecting on life as it truly is pushes us up against this reality that, especially in America, especially where we live, we tend to try to insulate ourselves from hardship. We try to insulate ourselves from negative feelings, from things that are hard, from realities of life. I mean, think about all the things that we do. We have air-conditioned homes. We have uh, air-conditioned cars. Like, we don't even want to experience the hardship of even being hot, right? Like, but think about how we do that in all the rest of the areas of our lives. How easy is it for us just to ignore things that are hard in our lives just by moving past it, ignoring it, or just numbing ourselves, like just being stimulated with, with entertainment. He's going to talk a little bit more about this. But really, entertainment, in a lot of senses, is actually just trying to escape um, the difficult realities of life. I mean, how many of us are guilty of just binge, uh, binging through Netflix, right? I mean, it's just to, just to numb ourselves. We don't want to think. We just want to just shut down. We just want to just ignore some of the hard realities. Actually, in first service, I think I created a new word called binge flicks. So I don't know if that's going <laughs> to catch on. But um, verse 5, It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Okay, so if I gave you two, two choices here, um, go to a concert at Bridgestone or hang out with a friend who's about to um, bring up some area of where you're blind in your life and you actually have a blind spot and you actually need to hear a hard truth. Yeah, again, Solomon, going to choose the concert, right? But what is, what is he saying? He's getting after um, we... He's not knocking music. He's not, not saying, you know, don't, don't love music. In, verse, in chapter 12, in chapter 2, sorry, he, he loves music. Solomon is, loves having harps around. But he's contrasting the words of the wise versus the words of the foolish. Now think about even just in, um, he, uses, he uses music as, a, as a kind of the lyrics of that. But think about most of the stuff that we sing to or most of the songs that we have. If you print out the lyrics, you're like, this is terrible, like, wisdom. Like, you're not actually going to live life that way. Like, you wouldn't get very far in life if you actually, like, took the songs as wisdom, right? I mean, what if someone came up to you and they're like, hey, do you know how to actually navigate through really relationally hard things? I've got two words for you. Go listen to... Justin Bieber. No, no one, no one would ever be like, he relationally has it figured out. Like he knows how to navigate hard things. Like none of us are going to do that, right? Like we understand that, but we happily sing along these songs. But think about what he's saying is this, what is true. And I would actually have as a, as kind of a core conviction. The people that I trust the most, and I know that love me the most in this life are those who are willing to say hard things to me. That is just true. The people that I trust the most, I know that it wasn't easy for them to bring up what they're about to bring up, to point out a blind spot in my life or to, or to encourage me or to say something hard. Um, out of love, they're doing that. It would have been much easier for them to do what? Not say anything. So I know that their love and their care for me is actually what compelled them to share what they're about to share. 
that's what Solomon is saying. It's actually wise to listen to someone who is going to speak truth and who loves you and cares for you rather than to fill your life with, with lyrics of fools, of the words of fools who just keep things at the surface but never gets down there. The, there's a proverb that says, the wounds of a friend are faithful, but the kisses of the enemy are what? Many. So it's, it's taking that on for size. Like we need people in our life who we ask and give permission to do that in our lives and that we actually seek that out. This is upside down wisdom. I mean, how many of us want to hear where we have a blind spot? We don't, but Solomon is saying that is actually where character is formed. That's actually where relationship is formed. That's actually where God does work in the essence of, your, of who you are, going back to verse 1. Verse 6 continues on this thought, For the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool, for this too is futility. So the image here is how they used to cook their meals was using these thorn, thorn bushes, these, these twigs that would kind of uh, ignite really fast and give flame, but then and they'd be really loud, but then they would just go away. So that's kind of what he's talking about with the, the voices of the fools. It's kind of in the same way. It's really loud. It's really quick, but then it just kind of goes away. There's no substance to it. Verses uh, 1 through 6, let's summarize this. The living well in light of life's realities in a fallen creation, an upside-down world, we need to have upside-down wisdom, counterintuitive wisdom. For you to move toward this is for you to understand what Solomon is actually saying here. He is saying, I have seen it all. I have pursued it all. I've chased it all down. And I'm telling you, there is a better way to live in this world, which is broken. But it actually is upside down wisdom. And so he is saying, how can you live in this world? How can you have the best life in this world? I've done it all. I've experienced it all. Follow what I am saying um, in this. So true life is found in the places we don't expect, pursuing inner character more than material wealth, valuing funerals, not just parties, courageously facing life rather than escaping through pleasures or entertainment or substances, engaging with people and ideas and influences that can help you be a better person rather than just being around those and things that can entertain you. So this is how you navigate an upside-down world by upside-down wisdom. Now let's look at uh, verses 7 through 12, and then we're going to come to the conclusion in, in, where he does in, in verses 13 through 14. So we're going to move really quick through 7 through 12 um, as he flows through this. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now mad in this context isn't, um, isn't just angry, but rather foolish. Even a wise man can become foolish when faced with pressure. So a pre uh, power can tend to corrupt, and, it, and then the pressures uh, expose the heart and the greed that comes out from it. Verse 8 and 9. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. So when the pressures of life come, foolish people act out of selfishness and just anger. They just pop right there, and they, they exposes those. But a wise person does this, allows the injustices and the hardship of this world to teach them, to shape them, to shape their character. Verse 10, do not say... 
Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not wisdom, for it is not wisdom that you ask about this. So he is talking about nostalgia and the powerful emotion that it is. When we think of the past, how do we always think? I mean, if we're thinking about the past in a in a, in a positive light, we don't tend to think about the the negative things that happened, right? We're we're about to take a vacation to northern Michigan, and those are like my that's like my happy place, right? There's like no wrong that can happen in northern Michigan. Until you get there and there's mosquitoes everywhere, right? But like nostalgia, and to me, it's like, it's like all it smells is like fudge and beautiful, like, you know, it's like beautiful beaches and things like that. But like when I get up there, there's going to be like things that I don't remember because nostalgia is this powerful uh, emotion. How many times have you heard, um, I wish I could go back to those days, like it was so much better back then. How many of you heard people reference like the 1950s, that was the place to be, you know, and it's just like, we, we think that uh, the, the, the past is better. But there's this theologian, Jerry Seinfeld, um, <laughs> who says that each generation has something hard to encounter, that each generation is just really dealing with its own hardships and its own way, uh, things that it's handed in, in life. And so I think he's right. I mean, it's, it's so easy for us to think that one, one thing was better than the other. And so Solomon's saying it's actually not uh, wisdom in thinking that way. So summary of uh, uh, verses 11 and 12, he's talking about wisdom uh, accompanied with prosperity can be beneficial. And he comes to the conclusion of that because of inheritance, wisdom along with inheritance is good because it shelters you from the hardships of life. Like there is a wise way to consider your finances that will help shelter you from just the, the elements of life, just the hardships of life. So he's talking about that. But he says of the two, actually wisdom is the only thing that can preserve your life. Okay, now here's the conclusion that comes to in verses 13 through 14. Now these, these two verses are huge for understanding the book of Ecclesiastes, especially the understanding going forward in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's look at these two verses. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Lloyd's message back in Ecclesiastes 1, he summarized Ecclesiastes 1 with these three truths about life. There is something wrong with everything. There is is something that will always be missing, and we can't do anything to fix it. Coming out of Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 1. But what he's saying here is that God is sovereign over all things. Go back to Genesis 3. So the fall of man affects all of life. It affects everything that we see. We have illness. We have broken relationships. We're seeking life apart from God. We can't um, have this relationship with, with God that we, that we need. This is where Solomon's coming from. And so Solomon is asking, if God has ordained everything of under, under the sun, this life, and it's all bent, it's warped, and it's mangled, it's not straight, who then, if God it continues to let this, this be bent, who then can straighten this curve? Who can straighten what is bent? And Solomon, he has to stop there. He can't see where we now see. Now, through the Spirit and what we see, this is actually a gigantic arrow pointing to who? To Jesus. Because God is going to send Jesus to do what? To straighten what is bent. 
Who can only straighten uh, what is bent? Solomon concludes only God can do it. And that's our our cue that God had to come to straighten what was made wrong in this world. And he does that through Jesus. Romans 8, verse 20 through 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So who is going to turn all of creation right side up again. Jesus says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new again. So when Jesus came on the scene, when Jesus uh, be- became incarnate and took on flesh, God became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. What does Jesus start teaching? It sounds a lot like Solomon. Listen to this. Matthew 16, verse 25. For whoever wishes to save his life should lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will do what? Find it. Mark 9. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. John 12, 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, then it bears fruit. So Jesus is actually picking up on this upside-down wisdom. He continues on in Matthew 5 and Luke 6 in the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. You see what Jesus is doing. He's picking up where Solomon left off. And he's saying, here's how you live in this upside-down world is actually through upside-down wisdom, counterintuitive choices. But there's a massive difference between what Jesus does and what Solomon does. Because Solomon could only take us to the end of life, our death. Solomon could not see with clarity beyond this life. Jesus is actually going to paint this picture of what life looks like in view of eternity and eternity with him. So Jesus is able to explain why you should live an upside-down life. He's able to point to something beyond just death. He's able to say, in light of the true kingdom, which is on its way, which is now breaking through, live in this upside-down world, in this upside-down kingdom of God. So he goes on, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, for your reward will be great in heaven. He's pointing to not only the redemption of all things, but he's pointing to eternity with God, that in light of this temporary and momentary afflictions that you face, it is producing something in eternity that we cannot see fully here yet. Life under the sun is not all there ever will be. So Solomon could only see to death. Jesus sees beyond it. So now Solomon could only say, live in light of your death. But now Jesus can take that further and say, live in light of true life that comes after death. Solomon could only say sorrow is better than laughter because it's more appropriate for the world where everything is vanity. Jesus can say a day is coming when sorrow will be permanently yield to a place of joy and laughter where there will be no more tears. So what? So what do we do in light of this? You cannot walk through this life 
without experiencing the hardship of the fall. The brokenness, the illness, broken relationships, disappointment. We cannot walk through this life where harm will not be afflicted upon us or where we will not harm and wound others. So how do we walk with God in pain and suffering? It's only when we realize that God himself has walked this path, that Jesus was a- is able to empathize with us because he's a savior that understands what we are dealing with and he has gone through it himself. It's when we come to him in honesty that we receive the mercy of God and a Savior who knows us and has walked with us. If you have your Bibles, open to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. In the back of your New Testament, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, says this. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest, Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with great confidence, so that we may receive mercy and found grace to help us in our time of need. How do we walk in this upside-down world? It's only an understanding that Jesus has walked it all in front of us, before us, and with us. It's his grace needed in our time that the Spirit reminds us that we need him to walk in all of life. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God in Pain and Suffering, which if you haven't read that and you, and you want to understand this more fully, we have that in our resource center, in our library. But he says this, Jesus lost all his glory so that we would be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that will ever truly destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took that on so now all your suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. See, God doesn't look down watching us in our hardship and trying to navigate this hardship of pain of the upside down world. He actually walked it for us. And we see in Jesus that he walks this upside down life. And that is where true wisdom is found of walking with him. In walking with God, God does not waste our pain He does not waste the counterintuitive choices of stepping into something hard rather than living in something easy. John Piper, in his sermon on suffering, says, Not only is your affliction momentary, not only is all of your affliction light in comparison to eternity and glory there, but it is all totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory in you because of that. I don't care whether it was cancer or criticism. I don't care whether it was slander or sickness. It isn't meaningless. It is doing something in you. It is producing something in you. It is not meaningless. Of course we can't see all that it is producing. Of course we can't see how this pain is shaping us because we cannot see what is unseen. 
But how many of us would look back on our life of painful things and say, I never would have chosen this on my own, but it produced something in me that if I had not gone through it, I would not be the type of person I am today. That is the work that God does in refining us in the upside down world that we live in when we choose to live with him in it. Lloyd one time said, God doesn't waste pain And he takes disappointment when we walk with him and he uses it for his glory because it shapes and molds us. It teaches us dependence, but it also produces something in us that we now have a gift to give others. 2 Corinthians 1 says, May the God of all comfort comfort you in your time of need so that you may comfort others as you have received the very comfort of God yourself. When you walk through disappointment or this upside-down world with God and choose the hard, you actually then get to give someone else the very comfort that you've received. You actually get to be part of the kingdom expanding where light begins to invade darkness, where someone has been stuck in shame or someone has been stuck in pain. You actually see the redemptive work of God start changing that. And you see... You see what God is doing. And so we have this opportunity this week to think, how do we, how do we live counterintuitive in this world? So I want to just give you some ideas. I want you just to to ask God, God, where are you inviting me in, in this world, this upside down world, the things that I'm facing? Where are you inviting me in to take a counterintuitive step, upside down wisdom to walk with you in something I normally wouldn't choose to go into? So here are some examples. And I I want you to come up with, with your own. Just ask God, God, where would... Would you be asking me to step into trusting your wisdom rather than my wisdom? Maybe this week, instead of going to a movie, you, you go and sit at the cemetery and you reflect on the end of life. Maybe instead of going to Netflix, you go and set up a counseling appointment to deal with something that has caused woundedness and pain and you've been voiding it. You've been numbing. You've been putting it off. You've been trying to ignore it, pretending it will go away. But how do you step into that? Maybe there's a conflict, a relational conflict in your life that you you don't want it to be there, but it's there. And instead of you just continuing to put it off, you actually schedule that meeting this week. Maybe for some of you in this room, you need to grieve something that you've lost, someone that you lost. Maybe it's a a job disappointment or it's a person. But you've never actually allowed yourself to grieve the loss of it not being true. And this week, I'd encourage you to read the Psalms, some Psalms of lament, and to sit in that and to actually mourn what has been lost in your life. Whether that is a relationship or whether that is a disappointment. But instead of going to something that would just be easy, but to actually sit in loss and mourning with God. Maybe this week, instead of spending money on something you were going to spend, you, you choose to give that money away. 
You go to our, our sharing board outside and you, for some of you, it would be putting up a need and for others, it would be meeting a need. But I think in all things, God is asking us to trust that the way to live in this world that is broken and is upside down, the way is actually trust and faith. That we cannot live the life God calls us to in our own strength and we press into dependence. The only way you could ever choose something that is upside down wisdom is through the Spirit of God at work in you. So as we sing this last song, I just encourage you just to take a moment and just pray a prayer of surrender and of dependence and to ask God to lead you in a place this week where you would press into something that feels counterintuitive but would be producing for you something that is eternal, not just focused in the temporary. So let us pray with him.